Good afternoon, everyone. You all having a good time at reInvent here? Woo! Woo! Well, uh, we're very happy that AWS invited us to come and speak at reInvent. It's a great honor. We're here to talk about the research program we've been doing for the last four years with uh, Gene Kim and Puppet. Uh, the title is Tools Won't Fix Your Broken DevOps. And the reason is that tools are great. We love tools. They're fabulous. But tools aren't enough. You need other things as well. So. Over the course of the next hour, we're going to talk about DevOps, what it is, why you should care about DevOps, how does it work, and some outcomes that we particularly care about, performance, how we're doing as an organization, and how we're doing as a software delivery capability, and then quality. And our whole research program is essentially dedicated to measuring those things and, and talking about how you can change those things, what impacts those things. And we'll talk about culture and how you measure culture, because that's so important to DevOps. So the reason why DevOps is important is because, uh, I mean, we're, I guess, at this point, 16 years into the Agile movement, the Agile Manifesto came out in 2001. Here we are 16 years later, and still my experience visiting companies is that the standard Agile process is something um, that following Dave West I like to call water, scrum, fall. And uh, who here has a, a, maybe a friend who works in an organization who, who follows this process? Okay, uh, still very popular. In this process, it takes months to get work through estimation, business plans, funding, budgeting, analysis, and then some plan lands on some engineer, manager, project manager's desk, and then work starts, and then at the end, we go through integration and testing, and then the whole thing gets thrown over the wall into operations to run. And if you take the bit in the middle, the software development bit, and you you know, everyone does the scrum. Um, what, what that does is it makes that middle bit a little more efficient. But in terms of the overall lead time from, you know, golf course up at the top to measurable customer outcome on the bottom of the right, that actually doesn't make a huge impact on the, that overall lead time. It's, it's hugely problematic. So just doing the, the agile bit in the middle isn't a big force multiplier. It doesn't create huge leverage in terms of transforming your process. And the question is, can we do better than this? And the answer is, yes, of course we can do better. Here we are at reInvent. So I'm going to show you a slide from Amazon. And this slide is from a presentation of Amazon's uh, in 2011, John Jenkins speaking at Velocity. And this is aggregated across all of Amazon services. They were making changes to production on average every 11.6 seconds, up to 1,079 deployments in a single hour. On average, 10,000 boxes receiving those deployments, and up to 30,000 boxes receiving those deployments. And based on the presentation at last year's reInvent, they're at least an order of magnitude faster than that now. And this is as they continue to scale their engineering team. And I'd like to point out a couple of things. Firstly, Amazon is heavily regulated. So they're a publicly traded company. They have to follow Sarbanes-Oxley. They also process the occasional credit card transaction, which means that they're PCI DSS regulated. The other thing I'd like to point out is that it took Amazon a substantial amount of investment to achieve this. They had to completely re-architect their entire 
enterprise systems. Uh, it took them around four years to do that. There's a paper on ACMQ, an interview with Werner Vogels, where he talks about that transformation uh, and, and the amount of investment and time it took them to do that. So that was a, a huge effort. It turns out that Amazon was not alone. There were many other companies who were pursuing this goal, and together with people in all kinds of different industries, we founded a movement, the DevOps movement. And this is my personal definition of the DevOps movement. It's a cross-functional community of practice dedicated to the study of building, evolving, and operating rapidly changing, secure, resilient systems at scale. So we have a wicked problem, which is that we're building complex distributed systems. They have to be secure, and we have to be able to make changes to them very, very rapidly in order to evolve our products and meet customer needs and organizational goals. So over the last few years, we've been in a research program studying this phenomenon. Or trying to study it, right? Because the challenge is when we're working with these really, really complex systems, how do we figure out if they really deliver value? So when I started working on my PhD and doing my research, I was actually at IBM. And I would go to my manager and I would say, hey, I want to try this thing. It worked with this team over here. And he would say, but that's not us. Who here's heard that? Right? That's not going to work for our team. That might work for their team. It won't work for my team. And so I wanted to find good ways to be able to study the development and delivery of software so that it could deliver value for teams, for customers, for organizations, in generalizable ways. Like Jez said, in, in generalizable ways that worked for large companies, small companies, highly regulated companies, so that I wouldn't keep hitting this wall or hurdle or something that kept saying, oh, well, that, for, that won't work for my team. Right? It will only work over there. It only works for them. And so we started working on this research project four years ago. Right? So the team at Dora, myself, Jez, um, Jean Kim, uh, in collaboration with the team at Puppet, to really investigate this. And so over the last four years, it has included over 23,000 data points across dozens of industries, companies of all sizes around the world. And we'll be going over a lot of these research results today. And I talk about what types of companies and teams we include because the subtext is kind of like there's no excuse. It'll work for everyone. And it's interesting because sometimes some companies will come to me and they'll set up a meeting and they have something really, really important to talk to me about. And I'm like, oh, tell me, I'm super excited. And they're like, here's this thing. I know it doesn't include me. And I'm like, wait, why not? And they're like, but you didn't include some characteristic. I'm like, no, it, it does include you. You're just not quite there yet. It's okay, right? So you can get better, and these are some of the ways we can show you how. I think the most important thing to point out, though, is does DevOps actually help, right? Is this technology transformation worth it? And what we found over the last four years and these 23,000 data points from over 2,000 companies around the world is that IT performance matters. The software delivery performance drives value. High-performing companies are twice as likely to exceed profitability, productivity, and market share goals. Now, I said high-performance right now. A few of you are probably thinking, like, high-performance? What do you mean by high-performance? 
So what I do is I take a data-driven approach to this. I collect all the data, and I do this every single year. I like throw it in the hopper, right? I throw it in the, like, the big stats bucket. And I see what happens. And all this data, like, it falls into four categories, where I see like a big group like doing awesome at software development and delivery with speed and stability. And then I see a gap. And then I see a group of that speed and stability thing, right? And then I see a gap. And then I see a group of everyone kind of sucking at it. <laughs> All in statistically significant ways. And so we call them high performers and medium performers and low performers, because I'm super creative. And so when I compare the high performers and the low performers, again, four years in a row, they're twice as likely to exceed profitability, productivity, and market share. So this is one way of capturing and measuring value that I think is super important. But it's interesting because as we went through those first three years, we realized that sometimes there's more to life than money. I mean, not really, but maybe sometimes. And so we added additional measures of what might also, what we might also want to capture, right? Could this ability to develop and deliver software with speed and stability also drive other outcome measures? And we found that the same multiplier is true. High performers are twice as likely to exceed goals that, that aren't just profit-driven. Things like effectiveness and efficiency, customer satisfaction, achieving broad mission and organizational goals. And it's important to point out that this isn't only true for those in the government or not-for-profit or educational space. This also holds true for our for-profit companies as well, because sometimes our for-profit companies also have broader goals like corporate social responsibility. So I'm going to take a half step back here. And I keep saying this, this phrase, the ability to, de to develop and deliver software with speed and stability. Right? For me, this is really what DevOps comes down to, right? Because DevOps is dev and ops, right? Develop and deliver software with speed and stability. Because speed is what our developers often care about, and stability is what our operations teams often care about. And so this is how we've measured it for the last four years. Our speed measures are lead time for changes, code commit to code deploy, or at least be in that deployable state. Release frequency is how often you're deploying these changes. When we move up to our stability measures, we have MTTR, mean time to restore, and then change fail rate. Now, the most important thing that I can get super excited about right here, these four measures move together. You don't have to sacrifice one in order to get the other. High performers, remember how I said I throw a bunch of measures in and like we see how they, how they pan out? These are the four measures that I throw in. High performers are killing it at everything. Low performers suck at everything, right? We don't see trade-offs. You don't have to slow down in order to be stable. Four years of data, I don't see trade-offs. We don't see trade-offs anywhere. So this is some of the data from the 2017 State of DevOps report. Take 
a look and see where your team might fall. By the way, these are reported medians. So there are definitely outliers. It's also important to note, we report this at the team level, right? Is anyone here in a really large organization? Right? Okay, so for those of you in large organizations, have you seen some teams that are like really fast, really nimble, and then other teams in that same organization that are just on the struggle bus? <laughs> That's why we capture this data and we classify software delivery performance at the team level. Because we know this is how technology transformations and how software delivery is done, right? It often starts at that team level and then can spread. So take a look, see where you might fall. Now, the most important thing that I want you to take away from this slide, look at the high performers. They are maximizing every dimension. They are getting speed, they are getting stability. They are not making sacrifices. Okay, now, at this point, you may be asking yourself, how do I move from low performance to medium performance to high performance, right? One does not just walk into high performance. <laughs> so that was the other thing that we really wanted to test in this research program. And that's one thing that makes our research program a little different, is that we don't just report percentages of where people are in the industry. We actually test predictive relationships because we want to help everyone get better. And so what we have found is that the ability to develop and deliver software with speed and stability relies on a few things. It relies on technology, right, tooling and automation for sure. It relies on um, lean management practices that draw from the lean and agile movement. It also relies on culture. And it relies on all three. We have to have all three because if we only do one, we don't see significant benefits. Companies that only like approach and attack one strategy don't see good outcomes. Um, has anyone here ever heard that like technology is just a cost center? Right, that is no fun. That comes out of the 80s and the 90s actually when companies were just adopting an approach where they would invest in technology, check a box off their like year to-do list and then walk away. We don't see good investment in returns. Now, in contrast, as Jez showed us at the beginning, if we only adopt an approach where we do a lot of like Kanban or Scrum, and then we walk away, we also don't see good significant returns. Or even in culture, if we have like pizza parties and beer bashes, but we don't make significant investments elsewhere, we don't see the returns. It takes all three and it's difficult, but we see returns and in investments. And other researchers are finding the same. John Besson out of Boston University also just found something. Um, it was just published in HBR in, here in 2017, finding that superstar firms are pulling away because they do tech plus. So, as I said, technology, lean management, and culture. It takes all three. So we're going to look at technology first. This is the part of the talk where we, where we dive into the results and show you how these things impact uh, IT performance and the particular things that make up those three different domains we're going to investigate. So this is from the 2015 State of DevOps report. The bolded items just tell you what was new in 20 no, 2016 yeah. that wasn't in 2015. Um, all of these things on the far left together, we're going to call continuous delivery. They're the things that, they're the, the practices, the capabilities that make up continuous delivery. So what you can see here is that 
effective test data management, being able to actually have good test data to run your automated tests, having comprehensive, fast and reliable test and deployment automation, doing continuous integration and trunk-based development. Um, who here is practicing continuous integration? Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. There's a little test here. Unless all your teams, the developers are pushing into a shared trunk or master once a day. If that's not true, put your hands down. Otherwise, keep them up. If you're working on feature branches that don't get merged into a shared master or trunk at least once a day, put your hands down. Okay, if when the tests break, they're not typically fixed within 10 minutes, put your hands down. Otherwise, keep them up. Okay, big round of applause for the people with their hands still up. I think there's about 20 of you. <laughs> Continuous integration is not running code build against your feature branches and then ignoring the build when it goes red. It's a practice of working off a shared trunk or master and actually fixing the build when it breaks so that you know that the system as a whole, including all the work in process, that developers are doing all integrates together and actually works. The practice of continuous integration. So our data shows very clearly that working off shared trunk rather than long-lived feature branches measurably predicts software delivery performance, speed and stability. Having all your configuration information to reproduce the production state of your systems in version control is the fourth box. And then incorporating security and security teams into the delivery process rather than having them be downstream post-dev complete. So those, those things together, we're going to call continuous delivery. And you can see from this how the same practices that allow you to move fast also allow you to create more stable production systems. So one good example of that is having all your configuration in version control so you can reproduce the state of your production environment and having automated deployment so you can deploy into that environment. That helps you in development because it means you can self-service test environments on demand. Who has to wait days or weeks to get a test environment for their software? Anyone? Who has There's a, a bunch of you. It's pretty common. That's a sign that something's wrong. You should be able to self-service test environments on demand. And guess what? If you can do that because you've automated that process, that's going to help you out in a disaster recovery scenario because that's the same capability that's going to allow you to stand up your production environment or your staging environment or an emergency environment in a predictable short amount of time in a disaster recovery environment or if you want to put up a staging environment or a blue-green environment. So these same capabilities allow you to move faster and allow you to create more stable systems as well. Continuous delivery has multiple impacts. So the, the, the research shows that it, it impacts IT performance, but it also has a bunch of other benefits as well. It reduces deployment pain reduces the amount of rework, which we'll talk about later. That's effectively a measure of quality, is if you get it right the first time and you don't have to fix it because someone downstream told you you broke something. By building quality in and reducing re rework, we're producing high qu higher quality systems. It also impacts culture. And this is really important. I mean, we're going to talk about culture later, but bear this in mind. One of the ways that you can change culture is by changing how people behave and what they do by giving people the tools and capabilities to be able to find problems and fix them 
straight away rather than having those problems go downstream, that helps build trust and helps change culture. So changing the way you develop software can create better collaboration and cooperation and improve your culture as well. And those things, as we discussed earlier, impact organizational performance, both in commercial and non-commercial terms. Yep. So another way to say what Jez just said is that investments in the way we make our technology and our tooling don't just pay off for the organization, they also pay off for the people, right? They make our work better. They reduce deployment pain, they reduce burnout, they make our culture better. The investments really are worth it. Are we gonna talk about identity later? Mm, I don't think so. We should briefly talk about it we now. We totally should. Okay, so identity is how strongly you identify with your work environment. I love that I work here. My values align with the organization, with my organization that I work with. This is a strong correlation with employee net promoter score, right? I would recommend my company or organization is a great place to work. This is great for a couple of reasons. First, for those, those of us or organizations who only care about money, um, it's highly correlated with ENPS, that um, net promoter score, employee net promoter score. Other research has found that ENPS is predictive of revenues. And we also found that high performers, teams from high performing teams, uh, people from high performing teams are 2.2 times more likely to recommend their organization as a great place to work. The other reason identity is great is that you see high values alignment with your team and your organization, right? I identify strongly, um, my team and my organization are probably doing the same things that I care about, right? Because we've made this investment in building good technology. This is important because burnout is, have you all heard burnout's kind of a thing right now in tech? It's a problem, right? Identity and values alignment helps decrease and fight burnout. So it kind of ends up being this double investment in making our work and our lives better. So implementing these practices makes people happier and happier people, A, are more likely to stay at your organization and B, will produce better outcomes for your organization as well. Happy cows make happy cheese, happy people make happy software. And cheese is delicious. <laughs> so, Quality, we talked about quality at the beginning. Quality is hard to measure because it's subjective. Quality is always quality for someone, it's intentional. Uh, that's what Jerry Weinberg says, by the way, quality is quality for someone. So measuring it in a quantitative way is hard. We tried a few different ways to measure it. One already came out when we talked about uh, nonprofit organizational outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, another one, another proxy variable for quality that we measured was rework versus unplanned work, which I talked about briefly, but I just want to show you a little bit more depth on this. We asked people what percentage of their time was spent on new work versus unplanned work or rework versus you know, the other stuff that one has to do when one does software like meetings. Um, and what we found is that high performers were spending 49% of their time on new work versus unplanned work or rework or other work, whereas low performers were spending much less of their time doing new work. So, Who's ever worked at an organization where you said, we'd love to, you know, please can we do some test automation or implement deployment automation or do some of these technical practices and your managers told you, we don't have time to do that, we're too busy. We'd love to, but we don't have time. Anyone heard that or you've got a friend who heard that? All right, so the, the fallacy in the argument becomes really clear when you see this because the reason that you're going slowly 
is because you haven't built quality in and you're having to do all this rework and all these other meetings. If you invest to fix those problems, that increases your capacity, which means you can get work done faster, which gives you more time to spend on improving things. So if you're in that situation and you're constantly in crunch mode, probably the reason for that is because, or one of the significant contributors to that, is the fact that you have significantly reduced capacity for actually doing work compared to people who've invested in actually making a jet engine for fast and stable delivery. There were some really interesting things that came out of our research. We've asked about all kinds of different questions. One that people ask about a lot in the context of regulated organizations is change management. So who works in a team where if you want to push a change live, some other team or some other person has to approve it first? Maybe you have a change advisory board or something like that. Wow, okay. So um, probably some good news for you. That doesn't work. Uh, we actually asked... It sounds like they're surprised. <laughs> yes! Uh, <coughs> so what we asked people is three options. We asked people if they have, and we thought we'd been quite clever here, all production changes must be approved by an external body before deployment or implementation, or we have no change approval process, or we rely on peer review to manage changes. And actually there was a fourth option I seem to remember, which is that only high-risk changes have to be approved. Only high-risk changes like database changes, but that one didn't... Science. It didn't load. It, so, it wasn't measuring the same thing. It was measuring something different. So we had to exclude it from analysis. So we had to get rid of that. And that's something that happens quite a lot in our research. We'll think we've been clever by asking a question that we think is going to nail it. Um, and then... And then science and stats is like, nope. Just drops Wrong, on the Nicole, floor. sorry. So that happens quite often in our research. And that's a good sign. I mean, it's bad if it's happening all the time. You don't want that to happen yeah. all the time. But you want it to happen some of the time, because if it's not happening some of the time, then it's just confirmation bias. If you're never surprised, something's wrong. So what we found is that having, change, having changes approved by an external body is negatively correlated with IT performance. And when we dug into it, what we found is it significantly reduces speed, as you would expect, because it takes longer to get changes out if you have to have them approved. But it has no significant positive impact on stability. Does nothing to improve change fail rate. Does nothing to improve time to restore service. So all that the change advisory board or external teams are doing is slowing you down without giving you any positive benefit in terms of stability. And that's kind of obvious if you think about what they're doing. If that group is reviewing potentially hundreds of thousands of lines of code change by hundreds or thousands of developers, okay, who, who in the audience has made a change that they thought couldn't possibly break anything and it broke something? Right? Right. You know, you're like, oh, this is a CSS change. This can't break anything. And then you push it to prod and the site goes down. And you're like, well, at least it wasn't me. Right? <laughs> and then someone comes over and is like, yeah, you just made our front page invisible with your CSS change. So. I think uh, he's talking about me. I think I did that two weeks ago. <laughs> right? So we're engineers who are in the code making these changes and we break stuff. So what are the chances that someone who's not in the code base could manually review those changes and understand the impact on the production system? It's a horrible, impossible job. And the only rational answer to the question, should we deploy this enormous change, is no. It'll probably break something. So it's a terrible job. Uh, I think you know, the people who do that have an important role, but it's not to manually inspect every change. 
it's to be doing governance on your process for getting changes live and looking at the statistics of how effective that process is and helping drive a continuous improvement process around your deployment and development process, not let's manually inspect every change. And the data shows very clearly, actually having no change approval process at all is better than having an external body yeah. review your changes, because at least it doesn't slow you down. Uh, what's best is peer review. And peer review could be pair programming, or it could be having a formal code review process inside your team, where either you use a tool to do it, or you just call someone over before you push and say, hey, can you scan this quickly and check that it's OK. You've thus also satisfied segregation of duties, because you made sure there's at least two pairs of eyes on the code before you push it out. Segregation of duties is best satisfied upstream at the development level in small batches where it's actually useful, rather than downstream in enormous batches by someone who doesn't know the code base. That's risk management theater. <coughs> so I'm going to talk about management stuff here. Um, so everyone who knows Lean knows about work in process and how one of the key practices in Lean software is uh, setting a limit to work in process so we can get stuff done more quickly. So we're like, well, obviously, that's going to have a huge impact. This is, is going to be great. Running the stats, everything's good. Uh -uh. Except the prediction wasn't very strong for software development and delivery. And I'm like, wait a minute. Ran it again, ran it again. And then we realized that there has to be something else going on, right? Whoops, sorry. That's fine. Teaser. So what's really important is WIP limits taken in context with other practices that also draw from the Lean and Agile canon. So WIP limits are very important, but do you know what hap happens to make them really, really impactful? Is combining them with a few other things, like visual displays to help everyone see what's happening. Also using monitoring to help drive business decisions. And by the way, this monitoring should be across application and infrastructure. And notice the end. I already said it. I'm going to say it again. To drive business decisions. This doesn't mean that we just get paged at 2 o'clock in the morning, and then we ignore everything else. Imagine having a feedback loop from what's happening in production to your business. So when we combine all of these together, then we really drive improvements in our ability to develop and deliver software with speed and stability in meaningful ways. And again, we kind of see a lot of these relationships come through where it's not just software delivery performance, but now we also see decreases in burnout and improvements in our culture. And then these flow through into organizational performance, profitability, productivity, and market share. So again, these investments are worth it. So we've used this uh, TLA SEM. Do you want to very briefly explain SEM to like a stats noob like me? Sure. It's a structured equation model. So um, many of us may be familiar with something like regression, right? If we go into Excel and we like fit a line on a, on a scatter plot, right? That only lets me do like one box, like two boxes with one arrow in between. Structured equation model lets me line up a whole bunch of boxes with some arrows that are kind of stacked, basically. And what I'm doing here is I'm using a correlation-based structured equation model called partial least squares. And the reason that we use that is because it optimizes for a few, re few reasons. One, it optimizes for prediction of the dependent variable. 
translation. The most important thing for me is to help organizations and teams understand how to make software better so that they can make their organizations more successful and deliver value. I want to optimize that dependent variable. The second thing is that it's really, really well suited to exploratory work. Not very many people have done this, so this is exploratory. The third, for like super like armchair stats people or real stats people out there, it doesn't require multivariate uh, or assumptions of multivariate normality. Big words. Um, it doesn't. I don't have to have a normal distribution in my data, so it's good for like lots of stats reasons. Okay, and if you want to know more about the stats, we've got a reference at the end for that. Yeah. So. The third thing that we want to talk about in the context of um, the things that drive performance is product management practices. And what we found is there's uh, technical practices enable product management, effective product management practices, because when you can work in small batches and get changes out in small batches, that allows you to do things like experimentation and other things that we care about in, in product management that's data-driven rather than product management that's what's called the HIPPO method, the highly paid person's opinion. <laughs> So product like management, we measured a few different things. All these things on this bulleted list are significant. Um, working in small batches and the use of MVPs or uh, minimum viable products, basically running experiments. Secondly, having visibility in the flow of work across the value stream by using something like value stream mapping uh, or just some other technique to see where the work is so you can see how we're doing and what's going on actually seeking and then acting on feedback from your customers. That turns out to be statistically important, who knew? And then the thing we measured last year, there's so many agile, you know, to use my fingers here, uh, agile organizations where, you know, everyone's taken the, the three-day scrum course or two-day scrum course, and, and now we're taking orders from management standing up instead of sitting down. And <laughs> Now that backlog of work that we can't ever complete uh, is now prioritized and estimated, and now we're agile, woo! Um, turns out that's not agile. <laughs> One of the key important characteristics of agile teams is that they, or the people doing the work have some authority to influence the work and the way the work is done. If you have to follow the rules mandated by management on the approved way to do agile, it's not agile. Teams should be able to improve their own process in a scientific way by using hypotheses and, and, and testing uh, ideas for process improvement, but teams should have the authority to do process improvement themselves. Teams should have the authority to come up with ideas to improve the product and then run experiments and, and gather data. So we measured this, and again, we found it was important. Giving teams the authority to create and change specifications combined with these other capabilities positively impacts IT performance and organizational performance. And I think something that's important to call out here, or at least mention, is this is so important, particularly in software, right? Working in small batches, getting visibility into the flow, seeking and acting on customer feedback, because we're making something that's basically invisible, right? We're no longer working on something like a manufacturing line, where you could see the product and you could as a, as a developer or as an operations professional, you could very clearly see what you were working on, what your contribution was, and where it was in the life cycle. By helping people understand where the requirements are coming from, what portion of the product they're contributing to and where it is, and then allowing them to help create change where they see it, you get much greater buy-in. 
and much better outcomes. And so if you look at companies like Amazon, where they're running hundreds of experiments in production at any one time, it turns out that allows them to save huge amounts of money by not building things that don't work. So the experimentation team at Amazon used to be led by a guy called Ronnie Kahavi, who then went to Microsoft and uh, runs Microsoft's experimentation team. He has a huge amount of data from A-B tests conducted at Amazon and Microsoft. He wrote a paper, which is referenced here. His data shows that evaluating well-designed and executed experiments that were designed to improve a key metric, only about one-third were successful at improving the key metric. If you extrapolate that to software development as a whole, what that tells you is that unless you're actually measuring the impact of your features and not building the ones that don't deliver value, two-thirds of the features that you're building are delivering zero or negative value. That means you could be spending three days of your working week at the casino and still deliver the same value to your business if only you knew the two-thirds of the features that you're building that delivered zero or negative value to the business. This is why experimentation is so important, so that you can avoid building that, which means that you don't lose the opportunity cost of building stuff that would be valuable to your organization. It, it means you don't add unnecessary complexity to your software. But Jez, what if I build it just in case? Just in case it's valuable. Just in case it's valuable. Right, so then you made your software more complex. Yes. You have to maintain those features forever. And then there's the opportunity cost of not building something that would have been valuable instead. So hugely problematic. One of my favorite stories about this also comes from Amazon. So it's lucky we're here at reInvent, really. Um, it's a story from a guy called Greg Linden. Um, Greg Linden was working on the recommendations team at Amazon. And he had an idea for uh, something that he could build for the products, which was at checkout, it would recommend items that other people had bought who had the same things that you had in your basket. So you've got some stuff in your basket. The recommendations engine looks for other people who bought those things and what else they bought and recommends you the other things they bought that you haven't bought. So builds, an ex builds a prototype, takes it to his VP and says, hey, what do you think? And the VP of product says, this is a terrible idea. It's going to distract people away from checking out. You shouldn't build it. So Greg Linden, a bit sad, goes back to his desk, takes his prototype, brushes it up, pushes it into production, <laughs> runs an A-B test that shows that this prototype will substantially increase conversion. And then using the real data, goes back to the VP, probably not that happy, but says to Greg, you should go and build this, because clearly it's, it's important for our revenue, and then goes and builds it. So who works at a company where against the express demand of your VP, you could push a change into production. Anyone work at a company like that? <laughs> OK, well, look around. That's a non-zero number. There's like a bunch of people here who work at companies like that. Um, so you can read this on Greg Linden's blog, which is from 2006. So this is from something that happened before that. He says, I think building this culture is the key to innovation. Creativity must flow from everywhere. Whether you're a summer intern or the CTO, any good idea must be able to seek an objective test, preferably a test that exposes the idea to real customers. Everyone must be able to experiment, learn, and iterate. Position, obedience, and tradition should hold no power. For innovation to flourish, measurement must rule. And of course, as you can imagine, uh, we, we concur with this sentiment. I'm a fan. Well, I mean, my wallet might not be, but it's fine. So, so I mean, I think that's a really great segue into culture.
right? Because it really is about the technology and the tooling. That's what facilitates it and lean practices and lean product management practices. But without this culture, we really can't enable any of it. Who here has heard that culture is important in DevOps? Okay, who here has lived under a rock and has never heard that before? Okay, <laughs> fantastic. So when we started doing this study four years ago, we wanted to study culture, but we needed to find the right way to study culture, right? Because what do you mean when you talk about culture? Could I just be talking about national identity and what, what country you're from? Or are we really talking about breaking down silos and feeling free to share and doing postmortems when there's a failure? That's what we're really talking about, right? And so we decided to take a look and, and dig into the literature, and we came across this typology of organizational cultures that was proposed by Dr. Ron Westrom. He's a sociologist, and he studies performance outcomes and safety outcomes in high-risk and complex fields like healthcare and aviation. And we realized that this fits just what we're talking about, right? When we talk about things like breaking down silos, I see bridging encouraged. When I talk about things like doing postmortems when we have failures and learning from them, I see failure leads to inquiry. He's British, so it's spelled with an A. You're welcome. <laughs> when we talk about experimenting and being innovative, I see novelty is implemented. So we've studied this for the last few years, and we have found that this is highly predictive of both software delivery performance, your ability to develop and deliver software with both speed and stability, and organizational performance. And it shouldn't be surprising because it's been true in other contexts, and now it's also true in technology. And we have, a think sorry. have a think about where you stand on this. Yeah, think about it. I'm going to come back to it. We see that low performers have a high correlation with this, what Dr. Westrom calls a pathological structure, just very, very rule-oriented, right? Low cooperation, messengers are shot, right? We don't want to hear bad news. We blame them when they bring it to us. Bridging's discouraged, responsibilities are shirked. Jez's favorite, novelty is crushed. Novelty crushed. Medium performers are very highly correlated with a bureaucratic, rule-oriented environment. Modest cooperation, narrow responsibilities, failure, failure leads to justice. Oh, by the way, this is about 55% of the sample. Uh, pathological, I think, was 20-something percent. Um, now, the generative performance-oriented culture, this is highly correlated with our high performers. Just over 20% fall here. High cooperation, messengers are trained. Uh, and trained to bring us bad news so that we can learn, right? Risks are shared, bridging's encouraged, novelties implemented. Who here has a friend that might fall in below? Oh, no one, okay. Oh, you went there. Who here may fall into the bureaucratic category? Handful. Who here is lucky enough to be in a generative organization? Who has no friends? <laughs> no friends. It's, it's good to think about what type of team you might be on, though, right? And it's also really interesting to think about what this means about information flow, sharing, novelty within your teams. Um, this is how we measure it. It's measured on a Likert-type scale. 
So we have to find ways to study it and measure it, right? I can't just go ask somebody like, what's your culture like? So we measure it on a scale from one to seven, strongly disagree to strongly agree. So here's, here's one way you can measure it on your own teams. This has been open sourced. Um, and my like nerd moment was Dr. Westrom emailed me about a year ago now and he said, I hear you're using my work, can I see it? And he said, we're doing it right, so that's good. Uh, so you can capture these uh, one to seven and then average the score across to create what we call a construct. It's a latent construct. So as you read these, you notice it's really about team dynamics, right? We aren't talking about tools or technologies. And what's fascinating is that other people are finding the same things as well, right? So Google decided to study their engineers. For years, they had been studying their managers across 37,000, I think 1,000 were managers, they decided to study the 36,000 engineers they had to see what would make just the perfect team. They thought it would be the perfect mix of skills, a Node.js programmer, um, an R programmer, product manager. Stanford graduate. Stanford graduate. Turns out there were no statistically significant correlations at all. Nothing panned out. What was important was team dynamics. Far and above, the most important thing was psychological safety. Do you feel free to take risks with your team? Do you feel free to share? Do you understand what your team members are doing? Number two is dependability. Can I depend on my team? Three, four, and five were structure and clarity in the work that you're doing meaningfulness in your work, and impact, knowing that your work would have a real impact to your company. So it's really interesting because we decided to like roll this into some of our research one year. Uh, we created uh, questions similar to the one that you just saw for Westrom, and what we found is that these first two items load, they're measuring about the same thing as Westrom, which makes sense, right? Because it's talking about team dynamics, being safe with your team. The bottom three measured something very, very similar to identity, the one we talked about previously, having values alignment, doing work that's important and meaningful to you, knowing what your work is and how it contributes to your organization. So the research is aligning. The things that we're finding that are important to teams really are important to teams and across contexts. And it's always really nice when you can reproduce someone else's research. So the fact that we were able to do that uh, it, I personally found really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So just a couple of brief notes on, on failure. I think what's interesting for me in this diagram is that um, failure and novelty are, are linked to each other. And, and here's why. If you're on a team where when something goes wrong, you're punished for it, how likely are you to take risks? You're not, right? You're not going to take a risk. If, if it works out the wrong way, you're going to get punished for it. Innovation is basically risk-taking. By definition, you're doing something that's never been done before. So it's a risk. So if you're going to get punished, if, the, if it fails, you're not going to take risks, and that means you're not going to be able to innovate. These two things are linked. They're joined together. Teams that are punished for failure won't innovate, either in process or in product development. So I think it's important to think about failure. In a complex adaptive system, whether that's 
a system you're building, a software system, or an organizational system, like the systems that you work in. The organizations you work in are complex adaptive systems. Failure is inevitable. And one of the big mind shift changes of DevOps is accepting that failure is inevitable and saying, well, we're going to fail. What are we going to do about it? And this is the shift from thinking about time between failures and trying to prevent failure from accepting failure and saying, how can we minimize the impact of failure? How can we detect and respond to it as fast as possible instead? What that means is when something happens, the worst thing you can possibly do is find the person responsible and fire them. Because what will happen is you'll hire someone new, and that person will probably have the same information and tools available, and they'll probably make the same mistakes. That doesn't solve anything. The interesting question is not who was you know, a, an unfortunate place in the causal chain. It's why did that person not have better information and tools available to them so that they could have avoided that mistake or so it wouldn't have had the impact that it had. So, this is the key thing to consider. How do we get people better information? How do we detect and limit failure modes? If your investigation ends up with, it was Nicole's fault, it's a terrible investigation. For two reasons. A, because Nicole is very, really wrong. And secondly, because you haven't actually found out why that happens and, and addressed that instead. And especially how to keep it from happening in the future. So one of my favorite examples of this is uh, Etsy. Uh, this is Etsy 2.0, not the, the latest Etsy version of Etsy. Um, but this is uh, John Allspore and Rin Daniels at Etsy's annual developer conference. Another annual developer conference, they give away a sweater with three arms to the person who caused the biggest production outage in the last year. <laughs> and the reason for that is if you get a 404 on Etsy, it's a picture of a sweater with three arms. And the reason they do that is because this person has told us something really important about our system that we can then address and make better. So you're not punished for failure. If something happens, it's an opportunity to improve, and we reward people who don't try and avoid that, but actually embrace it. And uh, Rin Daniels has a great blog entry on this where they talk about how when they discovered that this upgrade, which they tested very rigorously using all the normal processes, failed in production. They got on Slack and, um, sorry, I've missed the transition here with the, with the reference on it. But if you go to Rin Daniel's blog, they have a blog post about how when this went wrong, they got on Slack. And the first question people asked was, how can we help? How can we get together and fix it and swarm on the problem and then have a post-mortem afterwards to address this problem and fix yeah. it? So that culture of not trying to punish people, but actually trying to help them and then improve the process is critical to building a high performance culture. Actively Do seeking those opportunities is huge. And by the way, her Twitter handle is at BeerOps. That's how you can find her blog. Yeah. There's another great quote from Kripa Krishnan, who ran or runs cloud operations at Google. Uh, she actually creates disaster recovery testing exercises that execute at Google over a course of 72 hours or so annually. And they do real things like turning off the connection between the data center and the Mountain View campus uh, and all kinds of crazy stuff. So she has a lot of data from doing these kinds of experiments. This is one of the things in her article that really struck me. For dirt start events to be successful, an organization first needs to accept system and process failures as a means of learning. We design tests that require engineers from several groups who might not normally work together to interact with each other. That way, should a real large-scale disaster ever strike, these people will already have strong working relationships. So it's about 
helping create trust and alignment across the organization so that when something goes wrong, you don't panic, you know what to do, you know who to call, you know how to work together because you've done it before. Who here has actually practiced failover to their disaster recovery environment in the last year in a realistic way by actually doing, switching something off? Okay, a bunch of you. So that, that should be everyone. If, it's like backups and restore. If you haven't practiced the restore, your backup's no good. Otherwise, it's what, Schrodinger's restore? We don't know if it actually exists. So I'm going to skip forward a bit because I want to leave some time for questions. Um, yeah. Okay, so big takeaways here is that we can have it all, or at least we can have both tempo and stability, right? The ability to develop and deliver software can come with both. Trade-offs don't have to occur, and I don't actually see it in any of the data across four years, 23,000 data sets, 2,000 companies. Um, another thing, DevOps culture and practices have a measurable impact on IT performance and organizational performance. Profitability, productivity, market share, and you don't just have to trust us. It's showing up in other research as well. So the investment in technology transformations is worth it and real. Um, culture can be measured and changed through organizational practices, through technical practices. Again, these investments are worth it. And then finally, technology and agility do matter, but it's not enough. Anyone trying to sell you DevOps in a box, it's not gonna happen, right? It takes technology plus. Technology plus lean management practices plus culture, and then you can affect real change and drive real impact and value in your organizations and customers. So for more, for more detail, for information on all the science, um, we have a book coming out in early 2018. Um, you can also access our research at our website. And if you want more information, you can also assess your organization. So just a couple of things I want to point out. If you want to know more about the science behind it, that's in this book. So if you have detailed questions about the science and how it was conducted, that's in this book. Uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon, of course. Uh, it's there. Uh, on our research page, a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, if you have to make a business case for this, we have a very detailed and comprehensive white paper on calculating the ROI of doing these things. The second thing is, uh, just today, we've released a new white paper on managing cloud infrastructure in heavily regulated environments like the federal government. Um, so that white paper is there as well. This is all free. The book's not free, but the research is free. Um, thank you very much. We have five minutes for questions. <laughs>